The preaching of God's Word then is in Ezra chapter 3, and there verses 1 through 7. Having read the whole, here just the first few verses to focus our attention. From Ezra 3, beginning there at verse 1. And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening, and so on. Brethren, here is the great work begun. The people have returned in accordance to God's purpose. And having returned to their cities, now they as one people join together for the work in Jerusalem. It's an interesting thought what it is they first give themselves to. Perhaps it would be that if you and I were strategizing, particularly as noted in verse 3, that there, were, there was the fear upon them because of the people of those countries, that we might think the first thing that they should do is build the wall. But in fact, the first thing they do is build the altar. And in doing so, they build a greater wall than any earthly wall would ever provide protection to them by. And in doing so, they have their priorities focused. They have their priority established. They have come to know, to serve, and to magnify God. But there's also much in this passage as well, perhaps that you and I easily Neglect. It opens in verse 1 with a reference to the seventh month. Now this in the Jewish calendar is significant because the seventh month was the day of festivals. Not festivals like you and I think of where people go and ride rides and have parties and things of that sort, but the feasts that were there established. So for some background, you can see this if you turn to Leviticus and chapter 23, Leviticus chapter 23. There, for instance, at verse 23, you'll notice that it mentions, when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not make clean, as it carries on, uh, riddance of the corners of thy field. When thou reapest, neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of thy harvest. Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And then notice it launches into the seventh month. And it speaks of, verse 24, in the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall ye have a Sabbath, a memorial, a blowing of trumpets, and holy convocation. And so the first day of the seventh month was set apart and was to be kept free of all servile work. There was to be a feast dedicated unto God. And then notice, as it says in verse 27, also on the tenth day of the seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be an holy convocation. Ye shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And you'll notice further, it carries on to verse 33. And it says, The Lord spake to Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. On the first day shall be an holy convocation. Seven days, verse 36, ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And so on. These are the feasts. One has said that to the believer of this day, it was a foretaste of heaven, where it shall be a holy day every day, where they have no rest and yet no unrest, for they are ever focused upon worshiping the Lord. 
And so when we read in Ezra chapter 3 that the seventh month was come, this is instructive to us. It's a day in God's providence that has come that they are to fix their souls upon the ordinances which hold forth to them a reconciling and reconciled God. That they are to remember the sacrifices and all of these things which testify to them both that they stand as sinners, but that they stand as pardoned sinners through the sacrifices which held forth to them the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And brethren, in the mindset of these Jews returning, how desperately they needed an overwhelming witness that God was a God who has pardoned them. They had been cast out of this city. You read with me at the end of this chapter that there were many priests, Levites, and chief of the fathers who were ancient men who decades before had witnessed Solomon's temple standing in its glory. And some of these would have seen the ravages that were committed in that very location. And they would have learned well, as you and I seeing in Psalm 119, that it was good that I was chastened, that they were brought low, that they would learn of their sins and be turned into the right way. And so as they've stood in exile, and they've stood there as it were, without this testimony of their sins pardoned, that they should now have opened to them this abundance of ordinances that would all hold forth the way of peace, the way of pardon, the way of fellowship with the Lord God. This is not accidental. It's not coincidental. It is providential that God should so order these things that in bringing them back, the first big thing that happens is the calendar turns to the seventh month the first day being the day of atonement or the feast of trumpets and then the day of atonement and then the feast of tabernacles and the multiplying of burnt sacrifices all of these flooding as it were with a message of reconciliation of peace of pardon of fellowship with God brethren in the lord's great wisdom what is he holding forth but the testimony of His love and grace to His people. And though there is much work to be performed, they actually need this testimony in order to go about performing the work. Though there are many enemies surrounding them, they need this above any earthly bulwark that could be brought up that they would know God is for them. That they are reconciled to God. And brethren, what this generation of Jews returning to Jerusalem needed, so all God's people need. That when they are set upon any great work, whether that is in their personal lives of godliness, or in their families, or in the congregation, or full larger than that, what is the great thing that we need but a clear testimony of that pardon peace, and fellowship which is ours by our great and high priest, by our sacrifice, by our altar, even the Lord Jesus Himself. The Lord's people need preeminently before all else the sure knowledge that God is reconciled to them and they to Him and they stand in a way of peace. There's a great work before them. And the great work needed great grace. Brethren, the same is for us today. Consider then from the passage two things. Firstly, this provision of grace. And secondly, the blessings of grace. The provision and the blessings of grace in the opening scenes of this reforming work in God's providence. Well, firstly then, the provision of grace. We know the truth of God's grace only as He makes it known to us. 
you hear people talk sometimes about God's grace, and yet if you listen to them, it becomes very apparent they're speaking out of their own thoughts instead of what the Word of God teaches. It's instructive to us that when they are setting up the altar with its offerings and sacrifices, notice what is stated in verse 2. We read that Jeshua, or Joshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brethren, the priests, so the high priest and other priests, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. What is this telling us? That the people who had earlier cast off God's Word and had thought that they were glorifying God's grace, saying, look, how, you know, we believe God's grace. We don't need these restrictive things. They've actually learned the only way of knowing God's grace is by holding fast to what the Word of God makes known. You remember the great error of Nadab and Abihu. So these two priests they offered strange fire unto God, which God had not commanded. The idea being, God never prescribed it of them. And they were then consumed in judgment. And if you look in Leviticus 9 and 10, 10, 1 through 3 is where this is recorded, there's this jubilation that's going on. They're celebrating God's grace. They're rejoicing with joy. And Nadab and Abihu then go beyond the Word of God. And they offer what He had not warranted. And what happens? Divine judgment falls upon them. Supernatural work of God consumes them. And Moses says to his brother Aaron, their father, it is what God has said, I will be sanctified by Him which draws nigh unto Me. Our forefathers had learned the lesson. We want to draw near to God. We desperately need to draw near to God. But the only way that anyone can draw near to God is in the way that God has shown us in His Word. You hear men today speak about your way and my way and their way. If you listen to any number of people, you'll sometimes come across this kind of illustration. Well, it's sort of like religion, you know. This religion says it's only my way, and that religion says it's only my way, but they're all talking about God. And what they fundamentally miss is that there is but one true religion. That religion which God has revealed to us. And the only revelation that is without fault is the Bible. And so when these come, notice what they're seeking to do. To set up the altar and offer burnt offerings. These sacrifices which speak of grace, they are sure to do it according to the Word of God. Brethren, there's instruction. The provision of grace comes only in accordance to the revelation of grace that is recorded in His Word. So it's instructive that when Paul treats of the most gracious ordinance we could ever think of, the Lord's Supper, the very thing that holds forth Christ crucified, what does He say? He says, that which I received from the Lord delivered I to you. He doesn't add to. He doesn't take away. He's clear to hold fast to the guidance which Christ has given. And if we desire to magnify and to know the grace of God, it must be like our forefathers here, like Paul before us as well, and the whole Scriptures teach that we do so according to the revelation of that grace. We have no right, but brethren, understand this, we gain no benefit either when we begin to invent thoughts of God's grace. We begin to think, well, this makes sense in my mind and it registers with others. Let's go about and do this. Invented ordinances and observances of humility and 
and so on, that are contrary and in addition to the revelation of God's Word, do nothing to minister grace to our souls. The only way that God provides grace is in accordance to His Word. We are beholden to His Word. And brethren, far from this being some notion that God is, you know, rather uh, uh, rude to us to give us just a small thing, we ought to realize this, that He's revealed any grace is an infinitely rich testimony of His love, of His kindness. He was under no constraints to save any such sinner. And this is evident not only by the fact of His sovereignty, it's not only evident by the fact of what grace in its very nature is, nor what sin deserves, but it's evident by the history of the fallen angels. He was under no compulsion, no constraint to save so much as one fallen angel. And brethren, He was under no constraint to save so much as one fallen man, woman, or child. That He's revealed a way is, understand this, infinitely more than all of the fallen angels receive. What a testimony that there is a revelation of God's grace. Yes, under the Old Covenant, it was bound up with types and shadows and ceremonies and sacrifices, but it's all holding forth the way of gracious reception by a substitute. Notice, as well, this provision of grace reminds us of our need for a mediator. So we have Jeshua or Joshua, this high priest, and his brethren, the priests, these who were going between the people and God. And when the temple was fully reconstructed, of course, they would go about their work of all of the various ceremonies and the high priest would bear upon himself the names of the people and present himself with the blood of sacrifices on their behalf. He would confess the sins of Israel and God would pardon their sins and so on. He was the mediator in this picturesque sense. And notice, here it's Joshua and his brethren the priests who are offering burnt offerings. They're setting up the altar. They're going about this work. It's instructive. It's not the people who are engaged in all of the work. They're doing much. It's only the priests who are there attending upon the altar's work, who are offering those sacrifices which typify and hold forth and point to the reconciliation which Christ would accomplish. Brethren, these are so many pointers to our great Mediator, our great High Priest, who labors on our behalf, bearing our names upon Him, who is ever working. It's a beautiful understanding that we possess by God's Word that not only was He engaged in His high priestly work upon the cross, He continues engaged in His high priestly work in His intercession. And what a thought this is. Never does Christ cease to present Himself as our mediator. He's always interceding. There are times, aren't there, where you and I, we drift in our thoughts. We drift in our zeal. Oh, there are great times by God's grace where we love to give ourselves to God and we pray that those seasons would be maintained and strengthened and multiplied and we would see others enjoying them, but we know what it is to have those seasons of declension where it is that we drift, we find our hand gripping more strongly the things of this world than they ought to grip. We know what it is for our affections to drift to things lawful and yet out of proportion to what they should be. We know what it is for our affections to drift to things that are unlawful, that should never have so much as a moment of our desire. But brethren, understand this. Our great high priest has never once flinched from his work. He continues as constant today as he ever has been.
that when we see the wonder of His commitment in saying, unto the Father, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup be taken from me, but not as I will, but as Thou wilt. And He's resolving to take the cup that the Father gave. So He's resolved still to intercede on our behalf. What a beautiful thing the priesthood pictures for us reminding us that we have a great and high priest. Oh, the book of Hebrews so full of this testimony that we have a great high priest not according to the order of Levi, the Levitical priest, and so on, Aaron, and the Aaronic priesthood, but we have a great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, and that he continues as that high priest forever. He continues forever. Brethren, understand this. When you're 10 million years in heaven, Christ will remain your high priest. And as His priesthood continues forever, your salvation continues forever. For He never ceases to gain what He seeks. He's given up Himself as the great offering. And He offers up Himself. What a beautiful testimony it is in Hebrews that He offered up not the blood of bulls and of goats. But what did He do? He gathered up His own blood and He presented it to His Father on behalf of His people. The provision of grace comes by means of a mediator. Sometimes you'll hear Protestants say, we don't have a priest. And there's truth to that as we limit ourselves to talking about earthly ministers. We don't have a priest. We contend that it's not right to call a gospel minister a priest. But brethren, let us be very plain in saying we have a priest. We have the great high priest. That's why we have no lesser priests. Because the great high priest has come. And this is our hope. He's the mediator. As Paul writes, there is one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. And as these priests are busy in all of their priestly labor, what was going on to the people who had gathered but this encouragement? Look what God has provided. He's retained and maintained the priesthood. And what are they doing? They're offering up these sacrifices which speak peace. Oh, I'm worthy of death, but the priesthood is at work. God's appointed ministers who would offer up sacrifices on our behalf, speaking of peace to us. What a blessing to have this provision of grace through our great and high priest, the mediator of the covenant of grace. And is it not instructive that it is Joshua who is the high priest? What a thought. Because you know this, Jesus is Joshua. The name Jesus is Joshua. Here is our great Joshua foreshadowed in Him coming to the altar, offering up these things. Oh, what a blessing to think that the greater Joshua, our Lord Jesus Christ, Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah saves is working on our behalf. There's our hope in our Joshua, the Son of God incarnate, the mediator of this covenant of grace. If ever grace should be provided to us, it will only come by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the provision of grace, as already hinted at, comes by way as well as of sacrifice. You'll notice a variety of ways make this out. Verse 3, you see the altar referenced. You see burnt offerings referenced. You see the Feast of Tabernacles wherein there's daily burnt offerings referenced. In verse 5, there's the continual burnt offering. And in verse 6, the burnt offering is mentioned again. Why such a focus on the burnt offering? Well, it's to our 
loss, that we're not as familiar with these offerings as we might be. And it might be of encouragement for us to give study to the various offerings. But in particular, the burnt offering seems to be focused on both because it was the principal offering of the Feast of Tabernacles, but also notice in Leviticus chapter 1 and at verse 3, it mentions and introduces the offering of a burnt offering, burnt sacrifice of the herd. What's to be offered? A male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, and he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And it goes on, speaking of the variety of burnt offerings, whether it be of this animal or that animal or another. It is principally focused on this idea of substitution. I come as one guilty. I confess my sins over this creature. That creature is then taken, slain, parted out, consumed in burnt offering. And it's received in anticipation of the true burnt offering, Christ Jesus, as making atonement for me. And think for a moment. This, these few seven verses multiply a focus on burnt offering over, 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 over again. You can hear the modern day strategist saying, listen, get on with it. You know, start building stuff. Get the wall built. Set the garrison up. Put watchmen on the towers. Get all of these things in place. But the people have learned the main point. It's really not the enemies around us that are the concern. Think of it this way. If God be for us, who can be against us? If we have peace with God, who cares about these little, weak minions who are only under the absolute control and power of God? But if I be at enmity with God, I could have nothing but peace surrounding me as far as men are concerned, and I am a man condemned. And so, remember, the extremity of sin that had been practiced in this spot, by the way, this very spot as wicked sacrifices had been offered, as profanity had been practiced, and as the desecration that was brought about at the destruction of Jerusalem took place, what is God doing? But He's multiplying with multitudes of testimonies that He is a pardoning God. A God who is ready to pardon. A God who does pardon. A God who receives His people by means of a substitute. Oh, it's clear, is it not, that this points us to Christ The very notion of this male without blemish. Oh, we can hear it, can't we? Of the Lord Jesus Christ as John sees Him. Behold, the Lamb of God. What a thought that is so much bound up in it. That Christ is the Lamb which God provides. It's His Lamb which He provides on our behalf. He's the spotless Lamb. He's the Lamb without blemish. All of these shadows, as it were, finally finding their substance. John seeing and pointing and saying, there He is! There's what all of these shadows were anticipating. He's the One who does what? Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Brethren, your sin, my sin, the sin of all God's chosen people, Jew and Gentile of every generation, they're placed upon Christ. And oh, Zechariah testifying as God speaks there, awake, O sword, and fall upon the man that is my fellow. It comes crashing down upon him. Atonement made. Christ saying, it is finished. All of this speaks of great salvation. But notice as well in Leviticus, 
It speaks repeatedly, verse 9, verse 13, verse 17 of chapter 1, that it shall be a sweet savor unto the Lord. These burnt offerings. It gives pardon, but it also establishes peace and fellowship. The very people whom God cast out, He gathered them up and He hurled them out of Jerusalem. He's now testifying to them with multiplicity of witness. I am at peace with you. And what I receive on behalf of my great Savior Jesus Christ I've given for you, shadowed forth by these things, is no longer the stench of your sins, which is repulsive to me, but because of Christ, who is foresignified by these, I receive that sweet smell, which is well-pleasing. And brethren, this is what you and I have as we approach near to God through Christ. We have the assurance of our sins as vile, as repeated, as wicked as they are pardoned. Because He's our substitute. And more than that, it actually provides us peace and fellowship with God. Oh, there's so much as it directs us to Christ. Well, thus, the provision of grace. What of then, secondly, the blessings of grace? Well, we've already mentioned these, but it's worth noting them in their proper sphere. One such blessing that comes from these offerings is pardon. It would be sufficient for God to have one sacrifice for signifying the one sacrifice of Christ. It would be sufficient for God simply to have told His people there's a sacrifice that's going to come and it's sufficient to cleanse your sins. Just as it would be sufficient, had God so chosen, for us merely to have the Bible and to have no Lord's Supper ever. But God is a God who loves to abound toward us and hold forth the witness in a multitude of ways that He is pleased to pardon us. And oh, when once we become aware of how often we tremble over the thought of how wicked and vile our sins are, oh, the goodness of God, that He in loving kindness would stoop down to us and say, look at the multiplicity of witness that I bring to bear to testify your sins are pardoned. It is a sweet thing that Christ says in instituting the Lord's Supper that it is to continue until that day that He returns. And oh, as Paul includes, he says that we proclaim the Lord's death till He come. Why? Why proclaim the Lord's death till He come? Well, it's worthy of being proclaimed. It is the great work of God. But it's also of benefit that it be proclaimed. Because you know as well as I that it doesn't take long to leave the Lord's table before we realize that we're guilty again of sin. Oh, it's burdensome at times, isn't it? Sometimes it's a struggle. We're sitting at the table and there we're hearing the Word of God and we're witnessing the sacrament of the Lord's Supper And we receive it and we have in some sense a trembling to say, Oh God, it shames me to know that after this moment, there will be sin that's committed by me. But the Lord has been pleased to ensure that His death is proclaimed till He come. Among other reasons, for no, the death has been completed. It's been accomplished that you would remember blood has been spilled. Death has been given. And that for the pardon of your sin. Brethren, we've said it. It's worth noting. It's worth emphasizing. There's no greater enemy in your life than your conscience with the knowledge of your guilt before a holy God. There's no way of placating that 
There's no way of getting around it. Foolish men think of guilt as nothing that big. They're sin. Yeah, you know, I sin, but what's the big deal? You know, everyone sins. I've done some bad things, but all in all, I'm a pretty good person. You know, even when I was doing this, I had good intentions. All these kinds of things are shared. But so soon as that soul gets a, just a scent of the holiness of God, they drop all of that. And they become aware, I've sinned against God. The holy, glorious God is the God against whom I've sinned. There's stories of people committing certain crimes, simple things even, and then they're sober to realize the one against whom it was committed. I know of one, as humorous as it may seem, you can get the picture, driving down the highway, speeding, and seeking to pass cars to get to where he is, going at a quicker rate. And then as he's speeding along, he's passing a car which then flashes the sirens and the lights, an undercover cop. And what happens? That person who is speeding along, gleeful, happy, and thinking it's not a big deal, and cut this person off, cut that person off. Now, in a moment's notice, the brake gets slammed, and the car slows, because he knows he's up against one who has authority to write him a ticket. Now, brethren, if that's the case about a civil offense of the weakest sort, what about when God flashes His alarm, His siren, His light in the conscience and says, you are sinning against the dreadful, the glorious, the infinite God. When that comes to one's soul, all of a sudden, the slight view of sin is thrown out the window. And any thought of my ability to atone for my sins is lost. How blessed then that one of the blessings that come to us by God's grace is the true, the sure knowledge of a sure pardon by which I may know my sins are forgiven. But there are other blessings of grace that comes to us in these things. Another is strength. Strength for the work that God calls us to. It's interesting that so soon as this is mentioned, verse 6 then transitions to verse 7, there's work being done. They gave money also unto the masons, to the carpenters, meat and drink and oil, and to them of Zidon, to them of Tyre, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon, to the Sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. They are now, as it were, oriented and encouraged to go about the bigger work. And this is true for us. We have need to take in the blessings of grace through Christ in order that we would labor about the other things He calls us to. And so, the very next passage moves to the building of the foundation of the house of the Lord. And then the building of the actual temple itself. All of it starts, however, with this testimony, this reminder, this participation in the grace of God through Christ Jesus. That's first. That's foremost. That's the beginning through which then all the strength unto labor abounds. Why? Well, we have it in the New Testament. It's Christ which strengtheneth me. It's Christ who strengthens us. We read this in Hebrews, that it's through the Lord Jesus Christ that we are brought to perform the various works that He calls us to. You and I will only be strengthened for the diligence of laboring for His glory in our homes and marriages, in our congregation, in evangelistic work, in reforming work. Insofar as Christ and the knowledge of Christ strengthens our souls. But you'll also notice <clears throat> that the blessing includes courage. Notice verse 3. It says that they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. What are we talking about? Who sets up an altar 
when they're surrounded by enemies. A people who need to know that God is reconciled to them. (coughs) It's the very thing that happens then in verse 1 of chapter 4. The adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captives did the temple. There are enemies that despise us and our work. They despise the purity of God's ordinances. They hate the God of heaven and earth. Our catechism speaks of Christ subduing us as our King and protecting us from all His and our enemies. Remember this. To the extent you're identified with Christ, the world has put a target on you and despises your faithfulness to Christ. The only way that you'll be able to persevere in the midst of such things with many enemies is by the sure knowledge that God is your God. That God is for you and not against you. For you, if, if you have the knowledge that God is for you, then you can stand in the face of all oppressors and say, take my life if you want. But God is my God. And I have the assurance, the certainty that He's mine. This is a blessing that comes to us as we have the knowledge of Christ crucified as our Savior. Well, as we close, brethren, let us see our need in our day for Christ. We have much that weighs heavily upon our thoughts. We look at the needs facing whether a congregation or presbytery, the church universal, and we see likewise the enemies, we see the needed reforms that must take place, we see all of these things, but what's the fundamental need we have? It's that we would know and live by faith in the Son of God. This isn't, as it were, Sunday School 101. Sometimes children begin to learn this answer, you know, about Jesus. You know, all answers ultimately lead to Jesus and it becomes trite and trivial. Brethren, that's because of trite and trivial minds. It's not because Christ is trite and trivial. It's because they've misunderstood the treasury that is in Christ. They've misunderstood the great provision that is bound up in Christ. And if you and I think that, well, yeah, of course, Jesus, but what else? What we've just shown about ourselves is we have trite and trivial views of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason that they're pouring themselves into the altar and the sacrifices is because they have been brought to sense their need for all that that communicates. And when you see a soul that cannot stop speaking of and praying with and praising and testifying of Christ, you don't find a simpleton you find one who has discovered the glorious person of the Son of God. The prophet, the priest, the king, the only one who can enact reformation. The only one who can advance the cause of His kingdom. The only one who can reform a heart. The only one who can raise dead souls. The only one who will raise dead bodies on the last day. They've discovered the glorious Son of God. Of God, which begs of us this thought Is Christ much to you? Is Christ much to me? Is Christ much to us? Would we look at the seventh month, for instance, and say, You know what? First day's coming. They're going to have the trumpets blaring. They're going to have a holy convocation. That's going to lose cost to me. I'm going to lose out on my work. And then the tenth day's coming. And then the fifteenth day's coming. And for eight days, there's going to be holy convocation. Tons of sacrifices. You know, I can't wait to get to the eighth month so we can get out of these feasts. Is that how we think sometimes? In new covenant ways. You know, I've got to pray. I've got to spend time with Christ. I've got to come to worship. I've got to do this and that. Oh, the Lord's Supper's coming up. You know, we're going to have this meeting and that meeting and all these things are multiplied. Or do we say, I get the fuller revelation of Christ. I get the more frequent revelation of Christ. 
And this is what my soul delights in. A commentator had it right in saying the seventh month was a festival month of heaven. To the Jew it was the opening, as it were, of heaven itself. Christ focused on so repeatedly. Brethren, here's the privilege. We don't have to wait for a seventh month. We have the privilege of all of these blessings in their fullness open to us. That we can sit down personally with our families, with our brothers and sisters, and have the priest open to us, the sacrifice open to us, and we can feed together upon Him. Brethren, you might say, well, that's sort of impractical. You know, what I need is strength for my marriage. What I need is strength for this trial. What I have, you know, I have bills I've got to pay, and I don't know how it's going to come to pass. I've got enemies who are harping for my job because I won't work on the Sabbath day. I've got all of these things. You know, don't cause me to be distracted from the practicality of what I really need. The brothers and sisters of this day had an altar to bear, to build, a temple to build, a city to build, <coughs> and yet they knew that they would be only strengthened as they gave themselves with diligence to focus upon the shadow of Christ. The same is true in all of our circumstances. We've got an unconverted child. We've got a parent. We've got a spouse. We've got a job. We've got an enemy. We've got all of these things. Your strength only comes as you commune with Christ. Christ said it this way, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He says, you can't do anything without Me. There's, get this? There's no practical step to take unless you're abiding in Christ. This is, the st- I mean, think of it. Would you say, listen, I've got to get down the highway. Don't bother me with the fuel. You know, do you put a piece of tape over your fuel light that says you're low on gas? And you say, that's impractical. I don't want to be bothered with that. I need to know what's my next turn. No, you need to fuel up because you've got turns to make. The same is true for us. We need to fuel up constantly upon Christ knowing that as we are fueled up by Him, filled up by Him, nourished by Him, we then have the spiritual strength to put into practice those things which He teaches us in His law. Here's the point. We don't say, yeah, 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 I dealt with that back then. We say, this is the constant focus from which any activity that needs to be taken will be strengthened so I can take it. I must live by faith in the Son of God for my trials. I must live by faith in the Son of God for my strength. I must live by faith in the Son of God for my prayers, for my Bible reading, for my worship of His name, for my daily living, I need the testimony of Christ crucified for me all the time. It's more necessary to me than my daily bread. Brethren, this being our need, let us rejoice that the Scripture is full, abundantly so, of this truth. It's there from the opening pages of the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And it's there throughout the end of the pages when it testifies of the Lamb who is worthy of praise for all time and eternity. Every page between, one way or another, focusing on the person and work of Christ. The Bible is full of the revelation of the Son of God, our Savior. It's full of the revelation not only of His sacrificial work, but of His kingly work. Of His work as a prophet. All that is His as prophet, priest, and king is held forth to us. The Bible is the revelation of Jesus the Savior. 
It's full of Him. In types and portraits and pictures and shadows under the Old Testament, in the fullness of His personal work in the New Testament, we have a book that is given to us to hold before us the Savior Jesus Christ. It's interesting, isn't it? Paul says to Timothy, right before he calls him to preach the Word in season, out of season, he says, Timothy, you know the Scriptures. You've known them since a child, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, which is what? By faith in Christ Jesus. The whole Scriptures. And by the way, at that time, it would have been primarily the Old Testament Paul's talking about. The Scriptures of the Old Testament are able to make you wise unto faith, unto salvation by faith in Christ Jesus. And all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is useful for all of this instruction and training in righteousness and so on. It's comprehensive and it holds forth both that provision of Christ and all the work that flows from Christ. And so he says, preach the Word. That's the focus. Brethren, let us be much in hearing God's Word. Let us be much in reading God's Word and memorizing God's Word. It's shameful that many of us have so little of God's Word memorized. Let us resolve to take it in and to meditate upon it, not just to have tally marks up about passages, but oh, to have it into our souls, to nourish our souls and to feed upon the person and work and will of Christ that we might grow thereby. And let us then be much in our personal owning of Christ, having been strengthened by Him, rejoicing that His Word is full of Himself. Let us be much in joyous, sacrificial, practical serving as He calls us to in our own circumstances. Brethren, we're right to look at the church and say there's reformation needed. Let us be right in looking to the grace that comes for reformation by ever fixing our souls upon Christ, yes, the King, yes, the Prophet, and yes, the Priest of our salvation. Would you stand with me for prayer?